I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. These are polarized times. It's all the more important that we the people bring together the best conservative, libertarian, and progressive voices in the country, not for political, but for constitutional debate. And dear we the people listeners, rest assured that we will continue to hold that light in the weeks, months, and years ahead. And in this episode, we preview the Supreme Court's upcoming October 2018 term, which begins on Monday, October 1st. And here to discuss the new term are two of our dream team, We the People, repeat guests, uh, visitors and friends of the National Constitution Center, and two of America's leading Supreme Court commentators and scholars. Brian Gorod is chief counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center, and she is here with me at our satellite studio in Washington, D.C. Brian, it's such an honor to have you back. Thank you for having me. And Ilya Shapiro is Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He is not in Washington, D.C., but in wonderful Austin, Texas. And Ilya, it's great to have you back as well. Good to be on. Let us begin with uh, some cases that may seem wonky, uh, but that makes them all the more exciting to jump into, and they may lead to some surprising areas of constitutional agreement and disagreement. We're going to start with a case that raises the question, should the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment apply against the states? We the people listeners, if you went to law school, you know that that's really highly important and interesting because only three clauses, including the Eighth Amendment excessive fines clauses, has not been applied against the states. And the question here is, should it apply? Uh, So first, uh, to set us up, uh, Brian, you can tell us a bit about the Facts. This is a case involving a, uh, a gentleman uh, who was uh, arrested on conspiracy charges for heroin. He pled guilty and had a six-year sentence. And uh, tell us about the rest of the uh, facts of the case and whether or not uh, you think that the excessive fines clause should apply against the states. Sure. Well, this is a case about Tyson Timms. As you said, he pled guilty to a drug offense in Indiana. He was sentenced to home detention, followed by probation. But that wasn't the end of his story. The state then authorized a civil forfeiture action to seize ownership of his personal vehicle, which was worth four times more than the maximum fine he could have received for his crime, simply because he drove the vehicle while committing his offense. An Indiana trial court said that this was unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause. When people think about the Eighth Amendment, they probably think about cruel and unusual punishment, but it also prohibits excessive fines from being imposed. And what the Indiana trial court said was that forfeiting the vehicle would be grossly disproportional to the gravity of his offense. But the Indiana Supreme Court disagreed, and not because it said the fine was commensurate with the the offense, but rather because it concluded that Indiana simply doesn't have to comply with the excessive fines clause. And that's because, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court has never held that the excessive fines clause is incorporated against the states. It's never held that the states have to comply with this clause. And that's a really kind of stunning thing 150 years after the birth of the 14th Amendment, because the 14th Amendment was a response to notorious violations of fundamental liberties by the states before and after the Civil War. And in fact, treating excessive fines as a second class right really makes no sense when you look at the history of the 14th Amendment which was adopted in part in response to Southern states using fines to suppress um, African-Americans. Indeed, it'd be particularly anomalous to say that the other provisions of the Eighth Amendment are incorporated, but the excessive fines clause isn't, because the Southern states often used fines in tandem with corporal punishment and other crimes. So yes, I think the, the Supreme Court should definitely hold that the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause is incorporated against the states. And it'll be really interesting to see what the court does with this case. Thank you so much for that. Ilya, I cannot wait to hear what you and Cato think about this case. There are a series of uh, amicus briefs on both sides filed by scholars, including uh, some 
uh, John Bessler and John Stiniford, uh, on behalf of neither party, who note that the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which influenced the Bill of Rights, explicitly provided that excessive bail ought not to be required nor excessive fines imposed. So did the state, the revolutionary era state constitutions prohibit uh, excessive fines? And is that relevant to the question of whether the federal uh, clause should be incorporated? Well, my view is uh, that uh, that's that's an interesting uh, historical point, but what we need to be doing originalism at the right time, meaning at the ratification of the 14th Amendment, so uh, in, in 1868, and, and is uh, uh, the prohibition of excessive fines something that uh, in the Reconstruction Era Congress was thinking about? And I, and I think it was. Um, that's not what we filed on. Cato joined a brief uh, led by the DKT Liberty Project, also joined by the Goldwater Institute, the Due Process Institute, uh, a couple of others. Uh, but we were talking more about civil asset forfeiture and how that undermines due rights and uh, due process and tramples on property rights, because that's sort of the background on this case. Uh, civil asset forfeiture is a very hot policy topic and one that cuts across uh, ideological or jurisprudential um, uh, uh, opponents. Uh, and so uh, we do hope, uh, Cato does hope, that uh, uh, that the court uh, incorporates or rather applies the excessive fines clause. Uh, my personal preference would be to do it by the privileges or immunities uh, uh, clause rather than due process. But I don't think this is the case where the court, other than Thomas perhaps uh, uh, motioning in that direction, possibly joined by Gorsuch, I don't think they're going to reconsider uh, that whole doctrine. Wonderful. Well, this is an exciting opportunity uh, to talk, uh, Brian and Ilya, about Cato and CAC's vision of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. The Constitutional Accountability Center invokes the text and history of the 14th Amendment uh, and argues that the Privileges or Immunities Clause did mean to incorporate most of the provisions of the original Bill of Rights and has cited the work of Akhil Amar, a friend of the Constitution Center. Brian, does CAC and does Akhil Amar believe that the Privileges or Immunities Clause incorporated all of the provisions of the first eight amendments, or are there any that the 14th Amendment through the Privileges or Immunities Clause should not incorporate? Well, I think I, I think Ilya is right that the court is probably not going to get into that debate in this case. And I think luckily for those who are concerned about civil forfeiture and who think that the excessive fines clause should apply to the states, uh, there's, you know, really good history in the Fourth Amendment, which makes clear that this provision of the Constitution clearly should apply to the states and that the Indiana Supreme Court was wrong to suggest that it can simply disregard this important constitutional protection. Great. Ilya, I understood from both of you that the court's not going to engage it, although, as you said, Justice Thomas uh, has expressed some interest in incorporating uh, and resurrecting the Privileges or Immunities Clause, and Justice Gorsuch might be interested too. But as an original matter, do you agree with Akhil Amar, or not, that the uh, 14th Amendment incorporated the individual rights provisions of the Bill of Rights, but not the structural provisions? So Akhil says, and this is a, uh, you know, not a mainstream view, but it's an influential one, that the Establishment Clause, for example, might not incorporate against the states because the Establishment Clause was a federalism provision that prevented the federal government from disestablishing uh, Unitarianism in Massachusetts. But I think Akhil would say that the excessive fines clause, to the degree that it's a restriction on government power, would incorporate. Uh, what are your views as an original matter about how much of the Bill of Rights is incorporated through the Privileges or Immunities Clause? Well, I have yet another view on this in that, as an original matter, incorporation itself, that concept, is a constitutional malapropism. That is, if the framers of the 14th Amendment had wanted simply to enumerate uh, which of the Bill of Rights was now incorporated against or applied to the states, they could have done so in so many words, but they did not. Instead, they talked about due process, equal protection, and privileges or immunities, which are both greater than uh, and less than uh, uh, what the Bill of Rights is. A lot of overlap, but not necessarily. And Akhil Amar, I think, uh, agrees with this, uh, and so he says that the Establishment Clause uh, was not one that uh, they that, that that's it, given that viewpoint uh, was to be applied rather than incorporated uh, uh, to the states. Um, I think that's probably uh, right, but not because of the structure versus uh, rights uh, provisions, but simply because of the meaning of privileges or immunities, which is sort of mid 19th century speak for natural rights. Uh, that that didn't include uh, uh, certain things that that were in the Bill of Rights. 
Thanks so much for that. Uh, Brian, what do you believe that the history of the 14th Amendment says about how much of the Bill of Rights uh, should incorporate? Well, I, mean, I think when you look at the history of the 14th Amendment, it was adopted against the backdrop of a long history of fundamental infringement or infringement of fundamental liberties by the states, both before and after the Civil War. And so I think the framers of the 14th Amendment were keenly aware of this. It was clear to the ratifying public at the time that the 14th Amendment was adopted that these infringements were going on, and the 14th Amendment was very much a response to them. Thank you for that. Dear We the People listeners, I know this is wonky, but it's hugely important. This was the biggest constitutional debate of the 20th century, how much of the Bill of Rights incorporated through the Due Process Clause. And if you'd like some follow-up reading, Akil's work is wonderful, as is that of uh, Michael Kent Curtis, No States Shall Abridge, and Kurt Lash has a definitive uh, set of work on the privileges or immunities clause. And, and so Jeff, it may I'm, or may not come up before the court. Yeah, go ahead, Ilya. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm pleased to announce that Josh Blackman and I have a piece coming out in the George Mason Law Review uh, pursuant to uh, this conference that where Brianna actually uh, also spoke this past Friday uh, celebrating the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment. So Josh and I update our previous article from 2010 on the eve of uh, McDonald versus City of Chicago that took up squarely this question of privileges or immunities versus due process. And so we're updating it for what courts have said in the meantime, what prospects are, uh, and, and all of that. And it's, it's, a, it's a short piece and, and should be, we think, readable. I'm so excited that you gave a shout out to that very important conference. We the People listeners, uh, check it out online. It was at the George Mason Law School on the 14th Amendment, and it was organized by uh, none other than Sheldon Gilbert, uh, who is about to start next week at the National Constitution Center as our new senior fellow for constitutional studies. Sheldon is a great scholar of the Constitution. He was one of my all-time favorite students at GW Law School, and I'm so excited that he and his family have chosen to come to Philly to help us spread constitutional light. So you'll be hearing more from him as well. Okay, we turn now to another case that seems wonky, but is really interesting textually, uh, and it's called Gamble versus United States, and it raises the question of whether the Supreme Court should overrule the separate sovereigns exception to the double jeopardy clause. Brian, what is the separate sovereigns exception? And how is it raised in this case? Sure. So, you know, what the Fifth Amendment says is that no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. And so what that means is generally you can't be prosecuted twice or three times for more for the same offense. But what the, court, the Supreme Court has long said is that successive prosecutions are allowed if they're undertaken by separate sovereigns. So, for example, the state government can prosecute you. And then the federal government can prosecute you after that. And that's OK. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Um, Terrence Gamble was prosecuted by the state of Alabama for possessing marijuana and for being a felon in possession of a firearm. While the state's prosecution was ongoing, the federal government then charged Gamble for the same offense under federal law, being a felon in possession of a firearm. Um, this federal charge was based on the exact same incident that gave rise to the state offense. And so what Gamble said to the district court was, this violates my Fifth Amendment right against being placed twice in jeopardy for the same crime. He moved to dismiss his federal indictment on that ground. And what the district court says was, said was, sorry, you know, I can't help you. This is Supreme Court doctrine until and unless the Supreme Court overturns that doctrine, your double jeopardy claim must fail. And what's interesting is a couple of years ago, Justice Ginsburg wrote a concurrence joined actually by Justice Thomas, suggesting that the court should take a fresh look at this dual sovereignty exception to the double jeopardy clause. She you know, pointed out that the double jeopardy clause is intended to shield individuals from the harassment of multiple prosecutions for the same misconduct. And she pointed out the dual sovereignty exception doesn't serve that purpose. And this is a particularly exciting case for me because the Constitutional Accountability Center got to file a brief with Ilya and the Cato Institute and also the ACLU urging the court to overrule the dual sovereignty exception. As we, we argue in our brief that this dual sovereignty exception is inconsistent with the text and the history and the purpose of the double jeopardy clause. And coming back to incorporation, we make the point that there have been significant changes in the law since the court last visited this issue, namely that the double jeopardy clause has since been incorporated against the states. The last time the court considered this case, this issue, the, the double jeopardy clause hadn't been incorporated against the states. 
And so the rule arguably made some sense. If the states could prosecute you as many times as they wanted for the same offense, it wasn't that surprising if the federal government could prosecute you after the state government did. But now that the court has recognized that the double jeopardy clause does apply to the states, um, it makes no sense to allow successive prosecutions, even if they're brought um, separately by the federal government and the state government. That is wonderful that you and CAC have filed a brief with Ilya and Cato as long as well as the ACLU. And it's an inspiring example of uh, constitutional bipartisanship. Ilya, tell us more about why in your brief you argue that the double jeopardy clause, uh, separate sovereigns exception, is not consistent with the text, uh, history, or purpose of the double jeopardy clause. Um, well, Jeff, I don't think I have uh, much to add to Brianne's summary uh, of our brief. I just think that uh, originally it's not even a, a question of incorporation because originally there were so few federal crimes that to ask the question of whether states and the federal government can prosecute the same thing is would have been laughable because uh, you know in what context would the limited number of federal crimes overlap with uh, the run-of-the-mill uh, uh, criminal law uh, in the states? It's it's only since we've had the expansion of the federal government. Uh, including a federal jurisdiction over criminal law, that we even run into this problem. But I, I, I do agree that it's uh, no consolation to say that you have a constitutional right against double jeopardy. But by the way, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a completely separate sovereign that is now taking a, uh, a second uh, uh, bite at the apple. But we'll see what kind of briefs uh, are filed uh, on the other side supporting uh, the government. Uh, so far, we have an interesting collection of amicus briefs supporting Mr. Gamble, including uh, not just the, the the joint brain trust of CAC, Cato, and ACLU, but one by uh, Senator Orrin Hatch, uh, written by Adam Unikowski, who's a, uh, a brilliant uh, advocate at Jenner and Block, uh, talking about this issue of the federalization of the criminal law and how that has undermined the rationale for the dual sovereignty doctrine. Fascinating. Brown, these two cases uh, suggest that... Uh these bipartisan coalitions about 14th Amendment text and history are really making some influence on the court. Why was it that it took the court a while to incorporate the double jeopardy clause? And what does it say that CAC and Cato both agree that the dual sovereignty exception should be overruled? Well, I think you're exactly right that the 14th Amendment um, and the incorporations issues and kind of criminal procedure issues more generally have provided an opportunity for groups that may not agree on everything to come together. What I think is particularly interesting about Tim's and Gamble is the important role that the constitutional text and history and values play in these cases and the arguments that we and Cato and other groups have made you know, telling the court, if you look at this history, you look at what the founders were trying to accomplish when they adopted the Fifth Amendment in Gamble and the Fourteenth Amendment in Thames, um, the answers are really quite clear. Wonderful. Um, Ilya, anything coming down the pike involving incorporation, including the unincorporated uh, provisions? Like, are there, are there Third Amendment cases uh, bubbling up in the pipeline? <laughs> and, and what can we expect this uh, text and history push to yield uh, over the coming years? Yeah, that, that reminds me of uh, one of my favorite Onion articles, Society for the Preservation of the Third Amendment Celebrates Another Successful Year. Um, <laughs> not, per, perhaps not as good as Supreme Court rules, Supreme Court rules. But uh, setting that aside, um, I, I don't know. I mean, there's not that many provisions that haven't been incorporated at, at this point. One is the uh, the unanimity of juries to, uh, to, to get a criminal conviction. There are only two states, Oregon and Louisiana, that don't require unanimity, so it's sort of been taking care of itself uh, legislatively, but the court did uh, turn down, I think, a case both out of Oregon and out of Louisiana in the last uh, decade. I think Louisiana is moving to change legislatively as well uh, anyway, but there, there, there are not too many of these things left, so it's not exactly a, a burning issue. I think we'll see more development on the privileges or immunities methodological uh, uh, front uh, in future unenumerated rights cases than we will in terms of incorporating uh, the explicit uh, protections of the Bill of Rights. Because you made the first uh, an excellent Third Amendment joke of, uh, of this week, Brown, just, just thinking aloud, is there any reason that the Third Amendment should not incorporate? Maybe, maybe is that another structural prohibition on government power rather than an individual right? I'm just thinking aloud here. I mean, if the court weren't weren't to incorporate it, I think that is probably the argument uh, that it would adopt. But, you know, I think the other way to look at it is the 
founders were deeply concerned about individual liberties and the protections in the Third Amendment were just another way of protecting individuals and their homes. And there's no real reason why that shouldn't be incorporated other than, as Ilya points out, there's just not been a lot of need for the court to address it. Great, Ilya. Do you think the Third Amendment should incorporate? Um, well, I'd have to think about the speeches of uh, Senator Josh Howard and, and Representative John Bingham, the leading uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, proponents, Sherpas of the 14th Amendment in the 39th Congress, uh, <laughs> to see what they thought about uh, housing troops or police or other uh, state uh, and local law enforcement uh, uh, agents. Uh, I don't know if that was a concern of the Reconstruction era. It's not like uh, the freedmen or union, union sympathizers in the South or whoever uh, was being forced to house these uh these folks, uh, these law enforcement agents, while uh, well, nobody else was or anything like that. So it it probably wasn't a an explicit concern. So we'd have to think about whether it's uh, one of the the natural rights, I suppose, that we inherently possess, not to have government agents forcibly occupying our homes. Fascinating. And we do know that the 14th Amendment was ratified at gunpoint. The Confederate states were not allowed back in unless they ratified. And there's a whole series of uh, student notes and scholarly articles trying to translate the Third Amendment's prohibition on excessive governmental power to modern controversies ranging from reproductive autonomy to uh, other um, very important issues. So we the people listeners understand that these long forgotten constitutional provisions can have new relevance. The courts are open to these kind of arguments. And that's why it's so crucially important that you educate yourself about the history of the 14th Amendment, as well as the original Bill of Rights, and try to think about how to translate uh, its original meaning into a changing world. Okay, we now come to a really wonky case. And Brian, you can tell me whether or not we should get excited about it. It's the case raising the question, does the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act apply to non-judicial foreclosure proceedings? It's called Obdusky versus McCarthy. Uh, do you want to spend a beat on this or, or, uh, or not? Sure. You know, I, I think it is an important case. You know, people may not think a lot about the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, but it's actually an important law that Congress passed to protect um, consumers, to protect individuals and, and make sure that debt collectors didn't engage in abusive practices when they collect debts. Don't intimidate people, don't harass them, don't threaten them. And, you know, the question this case presents is whether, as you say, the law's protections apply to non-judicial foreclosure. So the process by which a trustee is authorized to take and sell a consumer's home to fulfill an unpaid home mortgage. And this is an incredibly important question. You know, we're still in the wake of the great financial crisis of 2008, which lots of people lost their homes. Foreclosures are continuing at very high rates. And so this question about whether people are protected by this law is incredibly important. And I think this case is just a reminder that even though the court, not every case the court hears is a blockbuster case that's going to make huge headlines, it can be incredibly important to individuals um, at what the case, what the court ends up deciding. Thank you for exciting me and we the people listeners about the importance of this case. Uh, CAC filed a brief with members of Congress talking about how in response to abusive and unfair debt collection practices in 75, Congress passed this law and you make a uh, argument for why it is uh, it should be applied to a non-judicial foreclosure proceedings uh, in this case. The respondents disagree. Ilya, what is your view on the merits of this case? I'm afraid this is one I have really not been looking at. So uh, 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 unusually for me, I, I'm not going to opine. <laughs> there is an honorable constitutional pass that all of us can take in law school class and definitely when it comes to We the People podcasts and uh, so, so noted. But We the People listeners, if for real extra credit, and you know what, if you write to me, I will send you a, a note of appreciation. Um Find the respondent's brief in Abduski versus McCarthy, compare it with the CAC brief, and tell me which one you find more persuasive. This is exactly what we're supposed to be doing as citizens. And here's some real homework, and, and Brian just told us why it's important. It's a law that Congress passed. So figure it out yourself. This is technical, but and there are good arguments on both sides. But if you take the time to uh, form an educated opinion, you will have the gratitude of uh, me and, and our, your fellow We the People listeners. Okay, now we come to Nick versus Scott. What a jazzy 
Bafo name for a case name, and it has to do with an incredibly uh, important uh, provision, a hot-button issue, the takings clause. Brian, uh, the question is, the technical version is, should the Supreme Court reconsider a case called Williamson County, which requires property owners to exhaust state court remedies to ripen federal takings claims? And then there's a second issue, too. How would you state as, as clearly as possible the central issue in this in this case? Sure. So, you know, the question in this case is whether property owners essentially have to pursue remedies in state court before bringing takings claims in federal court. So the takings laws in the Constitution makes it unlawful for a person's private property to be taken um, unless they're compensated. And so the question is, to bring this claim in federal court that you haven't been justly compensated um, for a taking, do you first have to pursue state compensation remedies? And, you know, those who support this rule and think this case shouldn't be overturned say, you know, this makes total sense. The takings clause hasn't been violated unless there wasn't compensation. And so you need to go through the state compensation process and see whether you're going to be um, compensated or not. And a number of states have filed in this case saying that this rule respects and upholds the sovereignty of the states. Um, so this is going to be a you know interesting takings case. It has federalism overtones. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the court, particularly in the absence of Justice Kennedy, um, deals with this case. Thank you for that. Ilya Cato did file a brief in this case, and you were counsel of record, uh, and you uh, say that uh, stare decisis is important, but this Williamson case should be overturned. Tell us why the case is important and how you think it should be decided. Yeah, the, the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment is one of the few constitutional rights that you have that you have to bring uh, your claim in state court. It's not like if you're getting censored by the government or the government is uh, disarming you, you have to bring those First and Second Amendment claims respectively uh, in state court. No, you can file right in your federal district court and away you go. But, but here, because of this anomalous Williamson County rule from 1985, this doctrine that you have to exhaust your state claims, uh, you don't have uh, that choice. And uh, one can certainly argue federalism, and the, the, the more sophisticated uh, way of arguing this is that state judges are more familiar with local zoning rules, easements, uh, property boards, other these kind of like uh, uh, feet on the ground uh, sense of how uh, uh, local and state laws work more than, than federal courts might. But I think that's not realistic uh, uh, anymore, certainly, even if it ever was, because federal district judges are right there in those same communities and, uh, uh, in fact, might be more uh, independent, uh, not as reliant on, on dealing with uh, uh, the state uh, the zoning boards and, and other relevant uh, uh, local uh, entities. And at the end of the day, if it's the state that you're arguing that the property owner is arguing is violating your rights, well, that state court is part of the state government that's trying to do that while the federal court uh, is, uh, is separate. So um, this will indeed, uh, I think, be uh, the, the biggest property rights case of the term, even though it's a process one. That is, again, whether you can vindicate your rights in, in federal courts rather than the meaning of uh, public use when the government is exercising eminent domain or, or something. And uh, the other uh, tidbit that adds uh, to the interest in this case is that it involves private cemeteries. That's the underlying easement uh, or uh, inspection regime ordinance from this little township in Pennsylvania that's at issue. And so we're going to have lots of puns about interring the Williamson County Board or <laughs> this or that rule is dead already or, you know, walking, walking dead, uh, reviving, et cetera, et cetera. It lends itself to a lot of that. <laughs> Uh, but it's it's one way to make these somewhat dry, somewhat technical uh, arguments really uh, 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 come alive. And uh, you know, often the the process uh, will decide the end result. And and from my point uh, of view, I think it's important to allow property owners to avoid kind of the the Kafka esque situation of going through the state courts, being forced to go through the state courts, having the state court rule against them, and then the federal court telling them, well, rest judicata, meaning the case is already, the issue has already been resolved, so they're blocked from the federal courthouse steps altogether. That, to me, is the, the fundamental anomaly once we're talking about uh, constitutional rights. Thank you so much for those thanatic puns. I just learned the word thanatic from dictionary.com, which has a great word of the day, and a thanatic showed up uh, recently. And uh, we, the people listeners, you've heard Brian and Ilya agree 
on this one, uh, if you do check out the respondent's brief, which says that the just compensation clause doesn't confer a right to private property outright, it only gives the right to just compensation for property lawfully taken for public use, and and that right is secured if the property owner has a reasonable and adequate means to recover compensation. Okay, now we come to uh, this is this is an interesting sleeper as well. Perhaps Neves versus Bartlett, a First Amendment retaliatory arrest claim. Does probable cause defeat a First Amendment retaliatory arrest? claim. Brian, what is a First Amendment retaliatory arrest claim, and does probable cause defeat it? Sure. So, uh, you know, a First Amendment retaliatory arrest claim is a claim that a police officer arrested you not because you actually did something wrong or violated the law, but because they are unhappy with something that you said. And 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, often just called Section 1983, is an important federal law that gives individuals the right to sue when their constitutional rights have been violated. So, you know, imagine you're a person on the street, you see a police officer, you say something to him that he doesn't like, and then he sees you jaywalking. So he has probable cause to arrest you, but he didn't do it because of the jaywalking, he did it because of what you said. Can you sue him? That's essentially the question that the court will be um, answering in this case. And what the court will have to decide is whether that existence of probable cause is sufficient to bar a claim. Um, In this case, uh, an individual was arrested after telling a police officer that he didn't want to talk to him. And the police officer, the state trooper, said after arresting him, bet you wish you would have talked to me now. And so the district court, the first court, said that the fact that the officer, the trooper, had probable cause to arrest him barred his claim. He couldn't bring it. But the Ninth Circuit disagreed and said a plaintiff can still prevail on a claim of retaliatory arrest, even if the officers had probable cause to make an arrest. And I think that's where the court should ultimately come out. I think it's important to recognize what Section 1983 is doing, why Congress passed this critically important law. And it was designed to protect fundamental constitutional rights. The, there was a case a year or so ago where Justice Thomas uh, said that there should be uh, a probable cause element in a retaliatory arrest case, and he looked to the common law of torts in justifying that result. And, and what that misses is that the common law of torts um, weren't designed to protect fundamental constitutional rights. So the same interests didn't exist there that existed when Congress passed Section 1983. Thank you for that. Ilya, do you think that uh, the retaliatory arrest uh, claim uh, trumps probable cause? And are there broader First Amendment implications for this case about how the government can or can't retaliate against people for their free speech? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very wary of the government uh, retaliating for, for, for free speech. I think the First Amendment is one of the areas where in the last 20 years the court has uniformly been very protective of individual rights. Um, I want to ask Brianne, since I haven't looked, in, I haven't looked uh, too closely at this case, but I wonder, just this past term, the, the court decided in the Lozman case, um, uh, seemingly the same issue came up in a different context. It was kind of a, a, a gadfly uh, uh, complainer to a town council who the town councilors had arrested because they, they basically didn't like him. Um, and the court ruled that, yeah, he has his rights and, and the, the police should need probable cause, not just to say so of the, of the, of the town counselor to, uh, uh, to arrest him and to just, uh, you know, speaking his mind is, is not enough. So how, what, what more is there, uh, to do in this area, Brianne, do you think, why did they take this case? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, you know, in Lawsman, the court definitely teed up this question, but ultimately punted on whether probable cause is an element in the mine run of retaliatory arrest case, uh, retaliatory arrest cases. You know, what they pointed to there was they said that this case is uh, is different than most cases, in part because that case involved high level city policymakers. It wasn't just a police officer on the beat. But that was the case that I had in mind when I talked about Justice Thomas, because in that case, he said he would have answered the question presented and would have decided that probable cause was a requirement. Um, And so I think the court will probably actually decide that issue squarely in, in this case. Thanks for that great discussion on this interesting and important case. 
Uh, here's another one that could raise fundamental questions of administrative law and the future of the regulatory state. It's called Gundy versus United States, and it raises the question of the non-delegation doctrine in the context of whether the Federal Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act's delegation of authority to the Attorney General to issue regulations violates the non-delegation doctrine. Ilya, what is the non-delegation doctrine? Why is it one of the hottest questions in constitutional law? I think it came up on our Great We the People podcast last week about the future of the administrative state and what and what should happen in this case. Well, Jeff, you might recall, the listeners might recall from high school civics that the Constitution separates the powers of the federal government among three coordinate branches. And you may also recall, perhaps from grade school, the schoolhouse rock, that a bill becomes a law after it's passed by two houses uh, in Congress and signed by the president. Now, unfortunately for Herman Gundy, things are not so straightforward. He stands convicted of violating a law that for all intents and purposes, doesn't exist. Uh, let me explain. The, the sex offender registry law, SORNA, federal law, which set up a national system of sex offender registration and made it a crime for sex offenders to fail to register when they move. Um, well, when serving time on a federal drug charge, Gundy was transferred from Pennsylvania, uh, from a prison in Pennsylvania to a halfway house in Brooklyn. And according to the government, that counted as uh, interstate travel sufficient to trigger reporting obligations of which he was never advised because it turns out that Congress delegated uh, the question uh, of who would have to register uh, to the attorney general and uh, Gundy was convicted before that particular uh, uh, delegation. Um, the attorney general later uh, delegated uh, that, uh, uh, or sorry, he, he, he uh, wrote in a regulation uh, that uh, uh, Gundy would have to re-register, even though his sex offense is among those that predate SORNA. Uh, and recall, he was being moved from a prison to a halfway house. So this is not a kind of a voluntary or purely voluntary uh, move that he's making. So there's elements of retroactivity. There's elements of does the regulation apply when you're you know, in the custody of, the, of uh, uh, federal or, or state prisons? Um, and again, can those the answers to those questions be delegated by Congress uh, to the executive branch here to the uh, attorney general? Now, it's been decades uh, since the Supreme Court um, disapproved of delegations of, of this kind. I think the last time was 1935. Um, still, the doctrine is purportedly alive. It's kind of like the, uh, the Black Knight of Monty Python fame, forever asserting, I'm not dead yet, as its arms and legs and appendages are, <laughs> are, are, are cut off. Uh, well, maybe this time is different. You know, why would the court take up this issue? It's kind of a quirky issue, uh, unusual one. I suppose if you're going to breathe new life into the non-delegation doctrine, you would do it in this weird sort of sex offender registry case rather than something with huge political salience like Obamacare or uh, immigration law or, or, or gun regulation or, or what have you. Uh, but this will give the court an opportunity to explain what kind of intelligible principle, say, needs to guide any delegated uh, discretion, what distinguishes a delegation, an, an unconstitutional delegation of legislative power versus a constitutional delegation of simply fleshing out a congressional uh, regulatory scheme. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Brian, although Justice Thomas has expressed doubts about the entire non-delegation doctrine uh, in a narrower decision, uh, Reynolds versus United States, Justice Ginsburg joined then-Justice Scalia and Justice Gorsuch in suggesting that the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act does raise uh, questions under the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, CAC is not opposed to the doctrine in, in general, I think, but do you think it's uh, violated in, in, in this case? Yeah, so I mean, we didn't uh, file an amicus brief in this case, but I think those who are challenging this delegation certainly have a very strong argument. And I think, you know, you have to look at the context of this delegation, which, you know, gives the attorney general the authority to make really significant policy decisions in the criminal context that bear directly on the individual liberty of hundreds of thousands of people. I think, you know, when this case was granted, there was a lot of speculation about whether this was the first step to invigorating the non-delegation doctrine more broadly. And that could certainly have, you know, really significant ramifications for the administrative state. But I think this case is really pretty different than most contexts in which non-delegation issues could arise, given the, the criminal context, given the really unlimited discretion that the attorney general enjoys here. 
Thank you so much. I think we have uh, two quick uh, other cases that are docketed and then the ones that uh, are about to be announced. Uh, we have uh, Weyerhaeuser versus uh, the uh, UCSF, since I can't pronounce it, I'm not going to give the acronym, but the question is whether the Endangered Species Act prohibits designation of private land as an unoccupied critical habitat that's neither habitat nor essential to species conservation. Ilya, this Cato filed a fiery brief saying that the framers can create a system of government to protect the people by limiting power and that this U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, there it is, that's what it stands for, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, disregarded these liberty-protecting structural safeguards when it designated petitioner's property as a critical habit of the dusky gopher frog. Well, and we've got a, a, a frog and, and uh, a duskiness, so, uh, so tell us about why this case is exciting. Yes, it's, it's a uh, reptilian argument, I think, that the government is making here. And I'm actually surprised, Jeff, that you stumbled over U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and not Weyerhaeuser, which is even harder to spell than it is to pronounce. Uh, anyway, uh, the issue here is the dusky gopher frog actually was previously known as the Louisiana gopher frog because it exclusively lives and, as far as we know, has always lived uh, in Louisiana. Uh, there's some property owners, the Weyerhaeuser Company uh, in Mississippi, uh, that has had some of its uh, property designated by the Fish and Wildlife Service as critical habitat under the Endangered Species Act. That's essential to the survival of this gopher frog that's sub subsequently been renamed the Dusky Gopher Frog. Uh, and uh, it's it's a real head-scratcher because, uh, as I said, this, this frog, this breed of frog has never lived. Uh, on this particular land, and in fact, it cannot. The land is currently unsuitable for sustaining the frog's life cycle. So um, th there's an element of the Endangered Species Act here, uh, you know, more broadly, and that's why I think it'll get some attention uh, from environmentalist uh, uh, groups and, and whatnot. But this is really an administrative law case about judicial deference to uh, the determinations of executive agencies, of the administrative state. Uh, a very different type of issue than the non-delegation non case in, in Gundy that we just discussed, uh, but one that has very been much on the minds of the justices, certainly the legal academy and, and, and us legal policy wonks, uh, about uh, how much discretion uh, agencies have to interpret uh, statutes that can be ambiguous or, or vague. Well, what does critical habitat mean? It means essential to the survival of that species. If the Fish and Wildlife Service determines that habitat that is unsuitable for a species is essential to that species. Does the English language mean anything anymore is another way, in my view, somewhat biased because I filed in support of Weyerhaeuser, uh, what this case is really all about. So I don't think the court would actually have to push back very much on the Chevron doctrine or any of these doctrines about judicial deference to say that the, uh, the government is going a little too far here. Thank you for that. So we will see whether the Dusky gopher frog joins the hapless toad, as uh, then Judge Roberts put it in his lower court opinion involving uh, the uh, environmental policy uh, in the Supreme Court pantheon. But, Brian, there's some lurking big federalism questions here, and Cato argues in its brief that uh, the mere existence of land is not economic activity under the Commerce Clause. Otherwise, Congress would have jurisdiction over all land in the country, and it cites Wickard versus Filburn, the contested case uh, upholding the regulation of wheat uh, consumed in the backyard on the grounds that it might have effects on interstate commerce. So do you agree with Cato or is this a secret wedge into the scope of Congress's commerce power that you th that you think uh, should be upheld? Yeah, I mean, we didn't file this case, so I'm not familiar with the details. Uh, as I'm not as familiar with the details as Ilya is. But I, I, from what I know, I don't think the court is going to use this as an opportunity to cabin the Commerce Clause. Um, I think the court, you know, has addressed that in other cases recently, and I'm sure it will again soon. But I think, as you know, Ilya pointed out, this case does re raise really interesting questions of administrative law, questions that uh, have applicability well beyond this case. You know, how does the court determine whether statutes are ambiguous? How does it interpret the laws passed by Congress? And how does it deal with statutes where Congress decides to give agencies broad discretion to determine how best to um, 
what policies are best in particular areas. You know, that's a question that uh, is incredibly important because these questions of deference to administrative agencies um, are central to the federal government's ability to regulate in all sorts of ways, you know, ensuring that the air and water we breathe and drink is clean, ensuring that we're safe in our workplace. And so this question, this case tees up some of those questions. And so we'll see how this court, um, you know, addresses those issues in this particular context. Thank you so much for that. One last case, if you guys are up for it, it's very uh, wonky, but I have to tell you that I'm finding it very inspiring to delve into the legal details of these important cases, both because we're identifying unusual areas of agreement uh, when we talk about the legal details and because it's so important in these polarized times to really dig into these cases as law and to understand that the rule of law does have uh, more agreement uh, than uh, we might have thought before digging it in. So the the question here involves a doctrine called see, pray, and I didn't really remember it from property law, but I now am reminded by the great constitutional prep team that the phrase means as close as possible, and that uh, allows the court to interpret charitable gifts to implement the giver's intent. And this case actually involves a class auction where Google was sued by internet users who thought their privacy was violated. And parts of the settlement was that it was an $8.3 million settlement. 5.3 million of that was supposed to be paid to six CPRAE recipients who would dedicate the funds to promoting education. And the question here is whether the use of CPRAE doctrines for class actions should allow money to be transferred to charities and nonprofits that haven't been injured by the conduct that sparked the lawsuit. So I needed to read from the prep to describe that, but that actually does seem like an interesting question, Ilya. Uh, thoughts on it? Uh, yeah, well, we filed a brief, Cato filed a brief, um, uh, arguing not so much the due process aspect, which is very well uh, uh, covered um, uh, by the petitioners, by my friend Ted Frank of the uh, uh, class action uh, center at the uh, at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, but talking about the free speech clause. That is, each class member has a right to his claim and to speak for himself, and not to have that uh, extinguished by a donation to the judge's alma mater and and other such sweetheart uh, deals uh, between class counsel and uh, defense counsel to simply uh, get the lawyers paid and make the case go away from the corporate defendants. Uh, and so, uh, you know, supporting a charitable organization or using the rights of a uh, uh, of an individual class member who, given the settlement, everyone agrees, has viable claims that need to be satisfied, uh, satisfying them by supporting a, pati- a particular uh, a charitable cause raises uh, First Amendment issues in addition to the obvious due process ones that you're extinguishing these claims uh, with uh, no item of value at best coupons, uh, at worst, uh, this CPRE award. I think Chief Justice Roberts in particular has been hankering for um, uh, a case uh, on this issue and now he's got it. And another curious twist in the case is that Ted Frank will be arguing it himself. So it's it's an example of a pro se litigant. Now he's uh, not some crank, well I suppose some people might call him that, but he is a very accomplished uh, attorney, argues regularly in the lower courts. This just happens to be his first uh, Supreme Court argument, but he is the name objector to this uh, uh, sweetheart deal, as he puts it, this abuse of the CPRE uh, mechanism. Wow. So perhaps uh, we will see our first pro se CPRE litigant. <laughs> and uh, Brian, if uh, an inspired judge felt that a part of a settlement should be donated to the National Constitution Center, as of course every settlement should be, uh, should that be forb- uh, forbidden as a violation of the First Amendment rights of the rest of the class or not? I'm sure even Ilya would say that's totally fine. <laughs> There's an exception. There's, a- <laughs> uh, but it, this is a really interesting case uh, because it raises a host of different uh, issues. You know, one thing that I found really interesting in looking at this case was the Solicitor General's filing because he actually went further than Frank did, um, raising, he said, considerable doubt about whether the plaintiffs who sued Google actually met constitutional requirements to sue. Um, And so, you know, that would be a pretty stunning thing if the court were to um, go into this, uh, you know, Article Three constitutional standing question when the parties themselves uh, didn't raise standing as an issue. Um, But, you know, the 
the Solicitor General is obviously, as often called, the 10th Justice, is a very important litigant in the court. And so it'll be interesting to see how much attention that issue gets um, at argument and whether it gets any in the court's opinions as well. Wonderful. We have really ably and usefully reviewed the cases that are on the docket. Um, By the time we the people listeners hear this podcast on Thursday, the court will have announced the new cases that it's decided to hear at the so-called long conference that it just uh, held. Uh, Those cases uh, could involve questions ranging from California law that requires a landowner to get a permit to exclude public access to a private beach? Is that a taking under the Fifth Amendment? There's a cross on public property case, a World War I memorial uh, created in 1925 by the American Legion in Maryland and whether that violates the Constitution. And there's uh, a case about uh, vehicle searches as well. Ilya, out of the cases that the court might take and which our listeners will know whether they've taken, um, which are you most uh, interested in? Well, uh, it sounds like most of the interesting cases they're holding pending uh, perhaps the arrival of a ninth justice because they want to avoid a four to four uh, deadlock or having to have the case reargued just for the benefit of that justice. So uh, what, what interests me are uh, Second Amendment cases that are percolating through the course. The court hasn't taken one of those, of course, since since Heller, since the decade when it first announced that the Second Amendment protects an individual right. Uh, redistricting, partisan gerrymandering may be back at the court uh, for the second consecutive uh, year, the case out of North Carolina that they're looking at. Uh, the Cross case certainly raises curious issues of the Establishment Clause, which is a, a murky area that seems to be decided based on relatively arbitrary characteristics uh, 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 considerations uh, as considered by whoever the, the swing justice is at any given time. Um, these are the sorts of things, I think, that, uh, uh, that, that, that look to be interesting that are, that are percolating up. Thanks so much. Brian. your final thoughts on cases that you're watching and are, might be interesting. Yeah, I was going to mention the partisan gerrymandering case that, that Ilya flagged. You know, I think the court obviously had two really significant significant partisan gerrymandering cases on its docket last term. Um, some people, myself included, thought that if the court had uh, held that partisan gerrymandering was unconstitutional, they would have been the biggest cases of the term. Instead, the court declined to, to reach the merits, um, deciding them on standing and procedural grounds. But the court will have another opportunity this year, it looks like, to decide the really important questions um, posed by these partisan gerrymandering cases. Thank you so much for that. Well, uh, instead of closing statements, I just want to say how grateful I am to you, Brian Garad and Ilya uh, Shapiro, for having carefully taken us through the constitutional arguments in these important cases. Dear We the People listeners, these are polarized times. There will be grave challenges to the legitimacy of the court and the courts ahead. Regardless of which side of the spectrum you are on, it is urgently important that you take the time to educate yourself about the legal arguments in these cases to understand that not all law is politics so that you can reach informed decisions in which some cases your constitutional conclusions diverge from your political ones and you will find unexpected areas of agreement and disagreement. Ilya and Brian for having elevated us above partisan politics and allowed us to repose in the Constitution. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and Dave Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. Next week, I'll be in Washington, D.C. for the Atlantic Festival, and I'll sit down with Senators Chris Coons and Jeff Flake for a discussion on the Constitution in Crisis that's co-hosted with The Atlantic as part of their new special issue on the future of democracy. It's on October 2nd in D.C., starting at 8.30 a.m. If you can join in person, we'll live stream and bring the conversation to you on next Thursday's episode of We the People. Until then, please subscribe to the show, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.